3: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, June 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's Medical Association wrestles with COVID-19 and HIV. Then, concerns about voter turnout loom over Mississippi's municipal elections. And a Clarksdale Hotel is one of America's most endangered historical sites. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs updated Mississippians on the state's COVID-19 response at the Mississippi State Medical Association meeting Friday. Dobbs says there's cause for optimism on the virus front, but nagging challenges persist.
1: We have sort of stable, declining case numbers, which, which is promising, but we still have, you know, hundreds of cases a day. So still people are catching COVID. We are still logging deaths, and there's still people hospitalized in the ICU, sadly with covid So, you know, overall, comparative to where we've been a month ago, two months ago, looking really good. Um, Our immunization numbers are lagging. Everybody knows that we're last in the country, unfortunately, in immunization. There's no excuse for that. I I would almost guarantee that Mississippi is the easiest state in the union to get a COVID vaccine. And I will personally drive to your house and give you one if you call up here we want everybody vaccinated and actually if you follow some of my facebook and twitter stuff i've been out giving home visits to vaccinate folks so we've got um you can go to uh, vaccines.gov and you can choose and then walk into the county health department so we're going to keep doing them you can go to your doctor we started a a depot program we have community health centers we will pay all the overhead costs for people to go out and do community events or home vaccinations so if you Google ccvp msdh it'll be an application form so if you're a doc a clinic a hospital a nurse practitioner or whatever and you want to do it go sign up we want to fund you so and also we have a homebound program so we're trying to cover every possible base so if you haven't been vaccinated now at the time because as we know everybody is likely to either get vaccinated or to get COVID. and so if you're one of these people who are vulnerable you need to get vaccinated because under every circumstance. COVID is going to be the wrong pathway.
3: Streaming or streamlining vaccine supply is, of course, only one piece of Mississippi's puzzle. More urgent is addressing vaccine demand, which Dobbs acknowledges remains tepid. Certain vaccine incentives are likely out of consideration, he says, but others remain on the table.
1: Well, I will say the lottery stuff is probably out for us as far as like having a vaccine lottery. Um, With our federal grant funds, that has not really been something that they've endorsed. But we are, but CDC has given us clearance to give like a $20, 25 incentive per person. Um, and so we're looking at that. And so we're looking at setting up subgrants with our partners who maybe can do some high risk sort of disparity populations to try to maximize. Now, you know, it's going to work for some people. And it's just a tool. It, it's certainly, it's not, this is not the answer to our challenge, no, right? right? But we want to use every tool in the toolbox. And so we are, we are absolutely looking at that. So Expect to hear something about that in the near future.
3: Yesterday, Governor Tate Reeves in an interview with CNN had a little bit of a different take on vaccines.
4: We tried to focus our goals on reducing hospitalizations, reducing the number of individuals in ICU beds, because we think the most important thing is that if you get the virus, if you can get better with good quality care, that you receive that quality care. At our peak, we had 1,444 individuals in the hospital. Today, we have 131. We're down 90%. At our peak, we had 2,400 cases per day over a seven-day period. Over the last seven days, we've had barely 800 cases in total over those seven days. And so for, for that entire year period, the goalpost was let's reduce the number of cases and we've been successful at doing that. The question right. is why have we been successful at doing that? We've had a million Mississippians that have gotten the vaccine, but we've also had 320,000 Mississippians that have tested positive for the virus. Many people believe that somewhere between four and five times more people that have gotten the virus um, that have not tested have actually received, have gotten the virus. And so we've got somewhere probably between a million or so Mississippians that have natural immunity and because of that uh, there is very 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 little virus uh, in our state right we're still working to get the vaccine distributed and, and hope we'll continue to do so.
3: This idea that immunity conveyed by prior infection is comparable to immunity conveyed by a vaccine is controversial. At the Medical Association meeting a week ago, state epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers spoke out forcefully against Senator Rand Paul, who recently said those who've been uh, previously contracted COVID-19 need not get vaccinated.
5: It's misguided and it's, and it's disturbing. And it's, a, it's especially disturbing to hear uh, somebody who's a, who's a physician um, sort of way into that that sort of water that that if you've been previously infected that a vaccine is unnecessary and that's that's really concerning. Uh, a couple of things and and you know this is sort of or sort of the things that I say as well is is the infection can provide you with with some immunity. Uh, we know from from the information that we've had that um, the the information demonstrates that uh, individuals who've been infected are unlikely to become reinfected within, within that 90 day time frame. So that's good news. And, and, and certainly individuals can can feel a little bit more comfortable waiting that 90 days uh, after an infection before they're vaccinated. But I certainly don't recommend it. Um, I recommend that they get vaccinated as soon as they recover from that acute illness, because there's some things that we don't know at this point. We don't know how long that protection and that immunity is going to last after infection, and we don't know how complete that immunity or that um, protection will be.
3: One key difference between Paul and Reeves, Senator Paul, who was infected with the virus in spring of 2020, has declined a vaccine. Governor Reeves says he did receive a vaccine and encourages all Mississippians to do the same. The Health Association will meet again later this week. Coming up, who likely will and won't turn out to vote in Mississippi's municipal elections? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's municipal elections are tomorrow, and if this is the first time you've, you're hearing about them, you're not alone. Billy Hughes is mayor of Gulfport and president of the State Municipal League. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood that Mississippi's voting rates are troublingly low and trending in the wrong direction.
6: In general, not just municipal elections, but uh, we're seeing fewer and fewer people participate in the voting process and you have, you know, decisions on leadership made by a small number of people. And some might argue, you know, kind of comes out in the wash and the numbers will bear out just law of averages and numbers, but doesn't change the fact that we've got to find ways to get our citizens engaged and involved in a more effective matter. I think a lot of folks get worn down and worn out by the constant barrage of politics specific and general, in social media and in the media, uh, it just kind of wears folks down. But you would hope and think that if they get tired of it, maybe they would come out to make a change, let their voices be heard. But that it seems like every single election, no matter what level, we're always striving to get people to get out and vote and hopefully provide as much information as possible as candidates and about the process to ramp it up.
7: Yeah. Is there anything about the primary election that may, may give you some insight to what to expect next week as far as turnout?
6: Uh, I'm, I'm concerned. We had low turnout again. Usually what drives people out are uh, high profile races and uh, a lot of down ticket races don't capture people's attention. Sometimes the folks don't have the money or ability to get their message out. But people tend to not look beyond either the president or the congressional or the governor. And at the local level, the, the sheriff or the mayor's race. And if those are not highly contested or high profile, people tend to um, just ignore the process. So the turnout was not what we had hoped this, this past go around. So we, we've just got to do our best. And right now, as municipal officials, as candidates, we're, we're doing all we can to let folks know, you know, about what our plans, what our, what our record is. and then, And, you know, if you like what we're doing need your support. If you, if you want to change, get out and vote. So that, that's, that's about as much as you can do and trying to use every medium possible. Can
7: you talk to me about the significance of voting in municipal elections? What is the impact there that maybe some people don't realize?
6: Yeah, that's actually a great question. Uh, government closest to the people tends to govern best because it is typically more responsive, more attuned, at at the state and federal level, they really have to be uh, and find themselves dealing with the larger picture, policy and philosophical matters that drive policy. But the delivery system happens at the local level. So that is the greatest place where your vote can make an impact as far as who's leading your cities, who is going to be more accessible because they are living full-time in your community. And usually you see them around the, the coffee shop or in the restaurants or businesses that, you know, they're very evident and uh, active in in every local community.
7: Thank you so much, Mayor, and safe travels to you. Take
6: care. Bye-bye.
7: Bye. Bye.
3: So what's to blame for perennially disappointed turnout? Marvin King, who is a professor of political science at Ole Miss, says a number of factors are in play, but he points to Mississippi's quirky springtime municipal election season as both potentially problematic and fairly unique.
8: And Mississippi... I think a strong argument can be made that voters have – there's a lot of voter confusion and a lot of voter fatigue, and that's because with so many elections, people often get through one election cycle and they're like, okay, great, I voted, not realizing that there's something seven months later. And so because we don't have everything on – you know, so just like the even-numbered years when we're doing federal elections, that confusion can throw off people, and the the fatigue is – for people who do want to vote in every election sometimes they just get tired and it's hard to keep up with all the different races and you know so the combination of confusion and fatigue and having elections in June at the start of summer when, when people are traveling it's almost like it was designed to not have many people participate
7: You know, one thing I've noticed, um, there have been a series of events engaging with voters, particularly black voters, leading up to the municipal elections next week. Um, And I want to ask you, could that be because black voters historically are less likely to vote in municipal elections, or could it be that black people have more to lose, if you will, if they don't vote in municipal elections?
8: I would say everyone has something to lose if they don't vote. I think certainly minority communities that are historically you know can point to you know historic facts that you know they were discriminated against and you know intentionally left out of the political process they they certainly have a lot to lose but in general I think anyone who doesn't vote is is kind of giving away their chance to to participate but you're right it so it makes sense to have concerted efforts to who may not appreciate you know why these races matter uh, because they don't get the attention and the media coverage i, I mean npb accepting cuz we're talking about it but in general you know local races often don't get the coverage that they need and so a lot of voters are like well what's the big deal no one's even talking about this why should i why should i go out there so voter education efforts really have to be year round you know so any 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 effort like that is going to hopefully have a positive effect on turnout.
7: I want to ask you about, um, you know, while we're talking about low turnout, is it lower in certain communities more than others? If so, why?
8: In general, voting behavior is going to be similar regardless of the actual offices being voted on, meaning people with higher education levels, higher income, vote more in every election. And so communities that disproportionately have lower educational attainment and lower income, you're going to see lower voting in general. And so, you know, unfortunately, that might affect minority communities more where you may not have, for instance, as many, you know, college grads. And so as a result, you're going to get lower turnout. And, you know, lower turnout generally is going to benefit incumbents. It's going to benefit the status quo you're not likely to get change if it's just a handful of people showing up to vote. Because in general, those same handful of people showing up to vote are probably the ones who voted the last time who voted the incumbents in. (laughs) So so just in general, you know, that's just kind of a general rule of thumb. You're not going to get much change when it's like that. Um, So if you're looking to kind of change political outcomes, then, you know, generally you're looking for higher turnout and enthusiasm among voters and, that's hard to generate in June at the beginning of you know summer and and people have just gotten off of work or you know school and you know taking trips and stuff like that or just not thinking about it because the presidential election was just seven months ago, and people many people might rightly be confused as to like why is there another election so shortly after this last big one, so the system could be made more user friendly so I think it's worth. You know, the voters can consider why Why do we do it this way, and any good social scientist will tell you, you. You look at the data, and you look at states that repeatedly have higher voter turnout in all their elections, and you look at, well, what do they do, and what are we doing differently? And, you know, so it's not hard to find examples of jurisdictions with higher turnout, and they do things differently. So it, I think it's just worth it for you know, voters, to, to ask the state legislators, why do we do it this way? What's the, what's the goal?
7: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marvin Keene with the University of Mississippi. We certainly appreciate your insight and your expertise on this subject. All
8: right. Glad to help. Thank you very much.
7: Yes. Take care.
3: Tomorrow, polling places throughout the state open at 7 a.m. and will uh, will remain open until 7 p.m. Coming up, a Mississippi hotel is named one of America's most endangered historical sites. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.
3: The Riverside Hotel in Clarksdale is one of America's most endangered historical sites. That's according to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which publishes an annual list of 11 at-risk landmarks. Last year, the Sun and Sand Motel in Jackson made the cut. The Riverside is a shabby, low-slung brick building on a quiet street. But as an honorary resolution signed by Clarksdale Mayor Chuck Espy acknowledges, its unassuming exterior belies its extraordinary
2: history the resolution declaring the historic significance of the Riverside Hotel, whereas the Riverside Hotel is one of Clarksdale's Mississippi most legendary extant relics. Its modest construction on the banks of the Sunflower River gives little hint of its international historic treasure that lies therein. Whereas in 1944, After the hospital had several years before closing its doors, Ms. ZL Ratliff Hill had the entrepreneurial vision to reclaim the property, to open the Riverside Hotel as a boarding house and eventually extending an unusable space to include 20 guest rooms over two floors. Listed in the Green Book archives, the hotel was one of few hotels and boarding houses in the Jim Crow era, offering lodging for many African-Americans. Be it further resolved as, as a result of many prominent musicians who called the Riverside home and home away from home, the hotel is officially recognized as an ossified legacy of music history as it created the lodging structure upon which the Clarksdale music scene was fastened in the mid to late 1940s and onward, And it has continued to serve as lodging for Clarksdale's tourism and culture under the care of the Ratliff family.
3: Leslie Leslie Kanan is a senior field officer with National Trust at a virtual event yesterday. She expounded upon the Riverside's history.
0: Rocket 88, the song that many credit as the birth of rock and roll, was written and practiced in the basement of the hotel between 1949 and 1950 by two local blues artists, Ike Turner and Jackie Brenston. Before it became the Riverside Hotel, the building was used as the G.T. Thomas Afro American Hospital for Black patients. Bessie Smith, the Empress of the Blues, was the most popular female blues singer of the 1920s and 30s and is regarded by many music legends as an abiding influence on their art. She's one of the greatest singers of her era, but in 1937, at the age of 43, Bessie Smith was involved in a car crash near Clarksdale and was brought to the G.T. Thomas Hospital. Tragically, she died there, but her room has been preserved in the Riverside Hotel to honor her memory. Mrs. C.L. Ratliff turned the building into the Riverside Hotel, and it has remained in the Ratliff family since 1957. Artists like Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, Duke Ellington, Sonny Boy Williamson, and many other blues and jazz artists frequented the hotel because it was close to transportation lines on the music circuit. Reportedly, C.L. Ratliff encouraged Muddy Waters to move to Chicago, saying that he had too much talent to stay in Clarksdale.
3: Sonia Ratliff-Gates is one of C.L. Ratliff's descendants. Her family remains actively involved in the operation of the hotel. Sonia notes that the hotel is a crucial landmark, not only in American music history, but also in African-American history.
9: I want to say how important it is for uh, us to continue to look at um, these types of buildings and these structures as a part of history that should not be taken for granted and that should continue to be preserved. There's lots of talk in the news right now about places like um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where all of those historical buildings about African Americans' businesses and homes were destroyed. And that's why this honor is so important to us is that we start with small amount of, of meager earnings. That's what my grandmother started with. And she continued to work hard from nothing to build something. A single Black woman in the 1940s who saw a vision and who worked hard. And then my father who worked hard to ensure that that legacy was continued. So it's up to my sister and myself who he's passed the torch on. To ensure that we continue to um, preserve this historical site.
3: Amid financial hardship, Sonia also acknowledges that the future of the Riverside is uncertain, but she says she's committed to ensuring that her family's history and the history of the Delta Blues, inextricably tied as they are, live on.
9: My dad viewed every guest as family. He would say, Come on in, you're welcome, this is home. He says, put your things down because this is home and his st- his uh, motto was come for the blues but stay for the hospitality and he was full of hospitality and he thought of each one of you as his brother or his sister and or, or even as a father figure because he would always go down and protect everybody he would tell me stories about how he would go at two o'clock at night down to res to make sure that his guests get back on time and so he is um His honor is, um, we hope to be able to pass that legacy on. You know, the doors of Riverside has not been closed since 1944. So because of COVID and because of the tree falling on it, because of the storm and my mom's passing, it has had its doors closed. But we are determined to open it back up.
3: Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio.